relationships and networks starts with a mentality of giving. I find that the more you kind of give love to the universe, the more the universe gives love back to you. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from the incredibly well-connected Annalie Killian. Annalie's mission in life is to catalyze the magic of human ingenuity to make the world, and especially corporate life, a better place. She is currently Vice President of Strategy and Partnerships for Omnicom's leading cultural intelligence agency, Sparks and Honey, the founder of the Amplify Innovation Festival at the financial services giant AMP, and a fellow of Aspen Institute's First Movers Program. You can follow Annalie on Twitter at at MaverickWoman. In this episode, Annalie shares insights on serendipitous learning, the network as filter, finding voices at the edge, the value from deep connections, and much, much more. So keep listening to learn from Annalie's great perspectives. Annalie, wonderful to have you on the Thriving on Overload podcast. <laughs> Hi, Ross. Nice to see you again. Annalie, you've been at the edge of the future in many ways for so long now. <laughs> How do you do it? What's at the heart of your ability to keep across change or where things are going? Um, I think it all starts with, you know, curiosity. Curiosity is a uh, characteristic that um, um, I have in spades. And so it's, uh, it's almost inevitable that I'm always seeking the edge because I'm curious. And uh, sometimes this curiosity has a... Uh, a nemesis, which is that you end up with, oh my God, information overload. You're curious and you find lots of information, there's often too much of it. So how do you deal with that? How do you get value from that profusion? Um, I guess there's there, there's a, a complex answer to that. One is I think that um, some information is okay to discard, but having consumed it um, and processed it, when you encounter similar scenarios, the insight is that you can recognize a pattern. And uh, it's probably at the point where I start to recognize a pattern that I kind of start to pay attention to see, hmm, should I be, should I be capturing some of this? Should I be saving some of it? Uh, so, um, that's 
part of the curiosity is about a, really an open funnel, and then there is a process of recognition of patterns, which then would, for me, um, indicate it's time to um, uh, track this. That's one way in terms of just, you know, serendipitous learning. And the other one is that I do a lot of my work around relationships um, and people. People people to me is the, uh, the way to scale lots and lots of information because I can't hold it all, but if I have a network that holds much of it, and I can get to them, then um, it helps with the process of um, curation and uh, just-in-time delivery. Uh, so that that is very useful. So for, for people, I have not found an ideal solution. Uh, we know that LinkedIn is the supposedly business network uh, where we store our valued relationships, but I found that the platform has actually become weaker over time rather than stronger. Uh, they used to have a feature that they eliminated a few years ago where you could annotate a contact. That's disappeared. And it's kind of, I sort of think that LinkedIn has a very one-dimensional view of how people use the platform. And Perhaps it's part of the architectural problems, but uh, I do think that there is an opportunity for a premiumization product where, um, and I already have a premium account, uh, which doesn't offer me these features, but I would love more features in LinkedIn in terms of being able to categorize, filter, annotate my contacts. So, so I'd like to just go back a little earlier in our conversation, then come back, come back to that. So talking about seeing the patterns, recognizing the patterns. Mm -hmm. So is that just something that emerges? Is there any ways in which you try to actively try to piece together uh, what you're seeing to build patterns? Is it just this, this recognition that this is something you need to, to follow? Is there anything which supports you in being able to see that there is a pattern? I guess there is. I mean, um, so there's two ways to answer that. One is at a personal level and the other one is professionally. So professionally, I now work with a firm that tracks cultural trends and we have developed a professional platform and algorithms, etc., for capturing um, millions and millions and millions of signals and then using this to, in fact, um, tag specific uh, events and so you can search it, filter it, etc. So that is a wonderful professional solution. At a personal level, prior to all of this, when I was working at the sort of edge of um, innovation through the lens of how it would affect and impact a particular business there where I was working in financial services. Um, for me, there was sometimes the recognition that edge dwellers started talking about something. So once again, I talk about your network being the filter. So there are a number of people that I respect and follow online because they are out-of-the-box thinkers um, and 
say my they may come up with something that I hadn't encountered before and then I pay attention because they are a trusted relationship. Or I might see something, think it's curious and interesting, and then look for who else is paying attention to this. And when I see that um, uh, it's being picked up by others, then I kind of know, okay, I'm onto something. So, so that you know, the, that's the description then of the network is filter in yes. terms of being able to then surface and to be able to say, well, if multiple people are looking at that, then that's worth looking at. Well, I think so um, because you know trends are shaped in culture, and culture is the sum total of everybody's behaviour in a particular system. So, um, the behaviour then is an indicator that something is a thing. So the and so you mentioned before about you see a pattern and then you might save it or capture that. I mean, do you have you had any long-standing ways in which you take notes or save things or build relationships between what you're capturing? Oh God, I wish. Um, possibly, given the grey hairs, there are a number of um, platforms that I've used over time that have come and gone. And with that, my links and my bookmarks have gone. Um, And, you know, the longevity of platforms and consistency in those platforms is a problem. Uh, We, I've mentioned to you that uh, sometimes these platforms are developed by young developers or uh, people that don't necessarily think in 30, 40 year um, timeframes. Many of us are going to live longer than 100 years. And so, you know, at the outset of architecting a solution, are people thinking about how this information may be valuable over 100 years and more? And that's part of the challenge with, um, you know, the the storage of information. Uh, So at the moment, my only, my best solution at the moment is that I use Box and I use my own um, taxonomy. I have used other versions of a cloud uh, storage solution uh, in the past. I used Dropbox before. Dropbox then went and changed some of its design. It's become so clunky and unusable that I don't even use that anymore. I've used Reddit. There was a platform before, which I can't remember, which was really good at um, just sending a link and then tagging it based on your own taxonomy, but that died. Um, I don't tend to use bookmarks um in my browser all that much because i find it very difficult to retrieve and make sense of it uh if i don't know what i'm looking for i can't really find it uh so find coming up with a taxonomy that works for me and it helps that i mirror the taxonomy in my professional um, organization now because we have a common language and then i can find things and so I just have an enormous box <laughs> account at the moment. So part of part of it, of course, is you know you you discern, you see things emerge, you notice them, you might save them. So how so how do you go through then that process of 
making meaning from it. I suppose the sense making or the meaning or pulling together the strands into seeing what is is really important. Sometimes my my um, collection is just a collection of random information um, in the sense that until I have a purpose to put against that information, like a question, um, I don't necessarily go and comb through it uh, to find meaning and sense um, for every single thing that I save because I'm not in the process of, you know, writing marketing blogs, etc. That's not what I do. If I did, that would be something that I might do in the moment. But I tend to save things that I think may come down the track at some future time when the mainstream is caught up. And then I have the ability to um, quickly put things together and produce an answer because I have already seen the writing on the wall and gathered sufficient number of resources to paint a picture or to find a go-to person or three. That's kind of mostly how I'm used at the moment is to find the go-to people. Um, but in order to know how who those go-to people are, I need to understand the domain. So I do both. I, I save the, the signals and I save the go-to people and the edge dwellers and the innovators uh, in the same so, sort of realm. Uh, so, yeah, it's basically purpose-driven. Um, depends on what the question is, who's asking the question, and what the purpose is. So, I mean, you, you are famed for your incredible network. And so, so, so tell, tell us about how you build your network with that from this information frame. This idea, as, as you said, of being able to see, well, who's the, these are the people that would understand a particular domain or having and being able to build enough understanding the domain to, I suppose, to identify those people or build the conversations or build the relationships. I and mean, what is that process? What is that? How does that happen for you? Um, very consciously. So because that's how I make a living these days is I pay a lot of attention to... Um, the, the voices at the edge. But I now am a lot more purposeful around uh, digging a bit deeper because we, uh, we are so primed through our, shall I say, standard operating environment that it, there is always a white male figure of authority that surfaces first. And... Because, um, because I'm a woman, I try very hard to say, if there is a man doing this, there's got to be a woman doing this, and to find those voices so that I have at least a, um, 
a number of different people that I can source. Increasingly now, um, because diversity, equity, and inclusion is such an important uh, dimension of the work that we do, I am very, very deliberate about finding persons of color, uh, persons with various, uh, you know, elements of diversity to add to the particular domain that I am looking at. And it's so interesting, Ross, that when you are deliberate and conscious to find these voices, you can find them. They are there. Absolutely. I know you started a list of female futurists many years ago. I mean, I applaud you for that. you know, for for me today, one of the things I find very frustrating um, about, you know, correcting this imbalance in terms of what sort of leadership looks like is that when it comes to people of color, everybody, you know, has somebody that is a diversity and inclusion consultant. But I'm looking for who are the AI ethics experts that are people of color? Who are you know, the lifestyle consultants, who are the uh, people at the edge of neuroscience, who are the people at the edge of medicine. So, um, and and they are there. We just have to, to do a little bit more to find them. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com course to find out more. Now back to the show. And so when you speak to people who uh, will look different or think different uh, or you know, have you know, all of these different diverse factors, how different do you find that their views are? I mean, I suppose it depends obviously in a social domain or some kinds of scientific domains, it would be different. But how much, how do you bring out that richness or how much difference is there and how how do you bring that together? Um, Well, uh, personally, I think that the, the differences are profound really profound um, in terms of how people view the world because our worldview is shaped by our experiences. And so um, the more diverse you have, uh, the more diverse experts you can bring to a problem, the more the different perspectives that you're going to get. It's really exponential. Um, And it's often that this different one or two uh, elements of a conversation can completely switch the direction in which a solution is going. I mean, we've all worked in innovation and we know this. Uh, What is really important also is, of course, the context within which uh, these conversations happen because they have to be received equally um, by, you know, the parties that you are trying to influence. Um, in, in a professional context, the work that we do 
around interviewing experts is done by expert strategists and analysts. Um, and in many cases, the points of view are anonymized so that they're not attributed to a particular person. Um, it's attributed to a panel of experts. Uh, and in some cases, they are attributed to individuals. And in many of those instances, it's really important to show the diversity of opinions that have gone into a piece of research. Uh, our most recent report on um, equity diversion, uh, you know, the equity effect um, interviewed people from many, many walks of life. And there it was really important to demonstrate um, attribution. But um, I'm a fan of diversity every single time. So when we were chatting before, you were talking about synthesis, mm -hmm. the, the bringing together. And, uh, and I, I suppose if you have diversity, it's the it's point that is not just a choice. It is saying, how do you bring together all of those diverse opinions to, if it's possible, to form something which is more holistic? So is there as a frame, is there a way of thinking, is there, how do you engage in that, you know, process of synthesis? Yes, of course there is, because everything is filtered through the, the, the ears of those on the receiving end and their life experiences, their prejudices, etc. But I think it helps when you have an independent system that you're working with. So Professionally, in our case, we are, uh, in my firm at Sparks and Honey, we work with um, a quantifying culture um, through data. So we do a lot of this quantification up front, and then we do the interviews um, for depth and for calibration and for nuance, because that's what expertise add. So uh, I think that the combination of these two uh, systems together helps to ensure a, a really good and robust output, um, because the synthesis is not just determined by one or two individuals. It's actually validated against an independent set of data-driven signals. So um, I hope that answers the question. Well, more broadly, so I think that is a lot of what you engage with because you have so diverse experience um, and exposure to things that you know a lot of your role is that one of synthesis and so not just in i suppose these studies or more generally i mean do you do you feel that over time you are drawing more of a, a synthesis of the of the perspectives and the experiences and the technologies and the ideas that you are coming across yes i guess i mean so i think this is a a question about longevity kind of thing. So the more, the longer you are on earth and the more you're exposed to lots and lots of information, um, the, the richer your own database is. Okay. And I'm capable at the age of nearly 60 now to 
to have a long view of, you know, 40 plus professional years of working to be able to draw on for synthesis. And now some people might call that the Achilles heel of experience because you might sort of uh, make everything fit through your own experience. Um, and there is a very solid argument in certain quarters that uh, experience can be the enemy of innovation. Don't know um, how true that is. I certainly think that you need um, both fresh eyes as well as experienced eyes. And when you bring those together, you probably have um, a better outcome. Uh, the I personally feel that I am at my most valuable to any business at this stage of my life, and I will be more valuable in five years from now. Every year that goes by, I get more valuable because of lived experience. Uh, so you just have more data to draw on. And um, if, you, if you apply uh, conscious um, critical thinking to this wealth of data that you can draw on, I think that uh, it does make you very valuable. So that means there are more connections to make between ideas and experience and people? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously um, being quite open-minded about things is important element to that. But I think it comes with the territory of people that are just naturally very curious. They are sponge-like and they absorb a lot of information um, and they have low filters. What, what, what do you mean by low filters? What I mean by low filters is that you are less judgmental um, and can accept things at face value sometimes. Maybe it's this this thing of being a ENTP. You know, you're 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 open to possibilities, not just probabilities. And, and I think that's an interesting counterpoint when you say experience. Uh, there are some people for which experience means that they start to get a more fixed yes. worldview, uh, whereas the there's no reason, I believe, with more experience that you necessarily it makes you closed-minded rather than open-minded. And I suppose that's that's the uh, key. Well, one of the key differences you, you observe is people grow older. Um, I'm not sure that it's... I don't think that it's just a thing of growing older. Um, I think that close-mindedness can exist at any age. It just um, calcifies. Yes. No, I mean, that, that's the mm. point. Some people mm. are maintain their open-mindedness or even increase it over exactly. time, whereas others exactly. don't. So that's not really a factor of age. It's really a factor of uh, personality type. Yes, maintaining that. So, so that's where experience, so wealth of experience with the open mindedness, yes, gets becomes more valuable. Exactly. Whereas perhaps the wealth of experience with uh, not not <laughs> being suppose... curious is not a good. That, yeah, that's not a combination. 
Well, what is interesting, though, is um, now this is uh, completely anecdotal, but uh, I think that there is something really interesting that happens with women um, after they have finished with you know, being primary caregivers um, and the sort of, you know, the the, the burden of primary caregiving um, is no longer there, is that I've personally encountered that women become professionally much more curious um, at a certain age and continue to flourish uh, that, I found that very, very interesting. So, perhaps rounding out and sort of thinking about, you know, is your real focus as a, as well, perhaps a networker isn't the best word, a person with an extraordinary network and a person who looks to the people and diverse people for finding ideas, what would be your advice to others who are using, I suppose, that network filter? in terms of being able to surface and define and to explore what is most interesting? I will uh, share with you um, something that might be valuable for your listeners is a book um, that I've recently read that encapsulated certain insights around friendship, networks, etc. And it's called Social Chemistry, and it's written by Marissa King. She's professor of psychology at Yale. And it was fascinating for me to read this book because the book gives you language around something that you intuitively know, uh, and it gives you a framework. Um, what I found very interesting about this book was the three kinds of network kind of people. There is those who just collect lots and lots of names, but their relationships are very shallow. And then there are those that have a very narrow circle, but very, very deep. And then there's the kind of the group in the middle, which is sort of like a blend of both. I think I'm the person in the middle that is kind of a blend of both. But what is interesting for me is that um, the people with a very big sort of Rolodex just of names, they're the ones who come into a, an event and they just kind of collect everybody's business cards, but they don't really stop and make a connection. And, just you know, there is really nothing there. There's no relationship. For me, the most valuable thing that I've learned in terms of building relationships is that you're better off spending a lot of time with a single person at an event and really getting to understand that person and making a deep connection. Then I follow that up by seeing how I could be valuable to them. How can I be, how can I share something that they will value how can I connect them to an opportunity? Is there somebody that they should meet that I know that would make either life more fun or advance their business agenda or something like that? So for me, all relationships and networks starts with a mentality of giving rather than taking. So 
never be a taker, be a giver. And when you're a giver, uh, it's, it's, it's also given without expectation. It's not like, oh, I've given you something, now you own me. It's literally just an attitude of generosity for the sake of it. And I find that the more you kind of give love to the universe, the more the universe gives love back to you in a multitude of different ways. And um, uh, so there is this tension or not, maybe it's not, it's not a tension. It's more like um, a super connection between um, human goodwill and our humanity and information. And when you bring these two things together, you get real value. And I don't know that computers and algorithms is going to get there very soon. Indeed. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Annalie. It's been a delight. Thank you so much, Ross. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.